I'm Catherine Spearing, and this is Uncertain. The Uncertain podcast seeks to challenge the church to do better, so we end up discussing a lot of abuse in the church. This topic is something we all wish didn't need to be discussed. But this isn't isolated, and this isn't rare. It's actually really common. Uncertain is the affiliate podcast of Tears of Eden, a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse. You can check out more information about Tears of Eden in the show notes. And if you're finding this podcast helpful, please consider giving a donation at tearsofeden.org support. Rachel Den Hollander, one of the first people to come forward and publicly accuse Larry Nasser, the serial child sexual abuser of the USA Gymnastics, said this about the church. Christians can tend to gloss over the devastation of any kind of suffering, but especially sexual assault. With Christian platitudes like, God works all things together for good, or God is sovereign, those are very good and glorious biblical truths, but when they are misapplied in a way to dampen the horror of evil, they ultimately dampen the goodness of God. She also goes on to say, the church is one of the least safe places to acknowledge abuse. Kara Million and Abigail Gishwind-Harris discovered this when they came forward with allegations of sexual harassment against a pastor in the Presbyterian Church of America, also known as the PCA. I'm including a huge portion of the interview as it's so helpful for understanding abuse and how abusers operate. Both Karen and Abigail name things most people don't see. I'll be breaking from my usual format to insert some summaries and comments, but most of this will be told in Karen Abigail's own words. This is a multi-part episode. Here is part one. How do you guys know each other? We met at Hope Presbyterian Church, which is a PCA church here in Bloomington. And it was a church plant at the time that we both attended and uh, met each other. Is this the church that you guys blew the whistle on? Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. Hope Presbyterian. Well, I would love to hear, yeah, just your story in your own words. You're out of church. Kari, you started experiencing some inappropriate behavior from a pastor. Yeah, I would love to just hear from you guys what happened. So it makes sense for me to start because my involvement in this started a little earlier than Abigail's did. But I would also like to note that if people want more details about this, they can read my article that was published on Christians for Biblical Equality site. And there's we'll also- link to that in the show notes. Yeah. And there's also another podcast episode out on faith and feminism that also goes into detail about the story. But basically, we started attending this church and my husband actually was doing a ministry internship, a three-year internship with this church as well and was working for the, the planting pastor. And the guy tended to be very charming and very well-spoken and eloquent and He often would talk about how he had a high view of women and was always trying to honor women in the church and elevate their roles in the church. And he could talk a really, really good game about his, you know, his respect for women. But over time, there were just a couple of red flags here and there where his something he would say or do didn't quite line up with that. 
But in general, for the first two years I was at this church, I didn't really feel like I experienced anything that caused me alarm, just the occasional red flag here and there that I kind of, you know, dismissed because you want to give somebody the benefit of the doubt. You don't want to assume absolutely malicious intentions. So can you give an example of a red flag? So one time he made a comment in passing along the lines of because women have more of a servant's heart than men do, women should have more serving roles in the church. And Mm -hmm. That just didn't seem to line up with what he'd been saying earlier, but I just sort of shrugged it off. Another time, so I don't have children. Another time he told my husband, people who don't have children are selfish, you know, and I thought that was a little odd. Just a couple of things like that. A couple of times he would pull me aside to try to have this conversation with me and he'd stand really close to me for the conversation. And that just seemed a little weird. Just things like that, where like in isolation, you just sort of like you do a double take and then shrug it off, but it's not really a huge deal. Builds up over time. Yes. Well, actually that was the weird part about this. In the third year that we were at the church, it just started very abruptly. You would think it builds over time. And I actually found out later there were indications that he might have been focusing on me longer than I realized based on things that he said to other people about me. For example, my husband would have weekly meetings with him to talk about church and the internship And over time, this pastor just started asking about me all the time and just constantly wanting to bring me up in conversation. And it made my husband a little uncomfortable, but it was his boss. So he couldn't really do anything about it. So I just might not have been aware of what was going on. And so eventually in 2018, I had posted something on my Facebook about the Rachel Denhollander situation because, yeah, when that was going on. And basically, I had seen a lot of pastors and male church leaders speaking up about her, that speech that she did or the victim impact statement, the really powerful one. Mm-hmm. And that with was with at the trial with Larry Nasser. Yeah. And so that was making such a huge impact all over the world, even. And people who normally don't pay attention to faith-based messages were actually like leaning in and being like, oh, you know, this is powerful because she spoke about justice and she spoke about grace. And what I saw was that a lot of these pastors and other church leaders were speaking up and trying to kind of talk over her and kind of modify her message to suit their own agendas about morality, about gender, about sexuality. And just like, they just seemed very uncomfortable that a woman was speaking and everyone was listening. And I was frustrated because I kept seeing this. And this pastor also mentioned her in his sermon in a way that I felt, you know, was participating in the same thing. So I posted a link to a article that she had written as a follow-up where she said church was one of the least safe places to acknowledge abuse. And when she started talking like that, suddenly the tide turned against her. And in my support of that message, looks like the tide was about to turn against me. But I also said, I also don't appreciate, I said, I don't remember exactly, but basically I criticized the messages that I was hearing from a lot of pulpits and a lot of, you know, men trying to talk over her and appropriate her message. So I wasn't singling him out. I didn't mention any names. It was just sort of a general phenomenon. He still to this day insists it was all about him, but it wasn't. Yeah, you were targeting him specifically. Yes, yes, on my private personal Facebook. So this happened while you were still attending this church right? and your husband was still an intern. Yeah. Okay. But like, yeah, I didn't mention anybody in particular. Nobody asked me what I thought or how, what I meant by that post. And my Facebook was private. Only people that I approve are supposed to be able to view it, which comes into play later. So unbeknownst to me, he apparently was having meetings about me behind my back with 
other men in the church, a so-called biblical counselor, and his right-hand man, Jeff, who was like a big leader in the church, who isn't an elder, which is really strange because you would think that he wouldn't have as much power as he has as a non-elder, but actually it allowed him to do a lot of things without any accountability. And so he was sort of like a shadow government man. And he's very often the pastor's enforcer. So whenever somebody steps out of line, this is the person that often you end up having a meeting with. Hmm. So, yeah. So anyway, I got a text message out of the blue from this pastor and he wanted to meet with me one-on-one, which he'd never in the two years we'd already been there asked for that before. The other thing that was really weird about the message was that normally when he reached out to me, he would ask my husband first or check with Chris. I never asked him to do that, but I figured if it made him more comfortable approaching me, I wasn't really going to complain about it. Hey, is it okay if I text your wife? Yes. Hey, is it okay if I meet with your wife? Well, so normally, but this time he didn't ask. He didn't indicate to Chris at all he was going to be contacting me. So that seemed a little odd. I, of course, told Chris immediately. I think he was in the room when I got the text. So then he asked for a meeting when I wanted to, quote unquote, catch up. So I responded that I was willing to meet with him, but it was I knew it was an unusual request. So I asked why he wanted to meet. He waited three whole days before getting back to me to the point where Chris was in his next meeting with him was like, by the way, you haven't gotten back to Carrie yet. And his response was, I know. So, yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. We found out later, this is apparently a pattern. He, we're not sure why he does it, but it seems like it's to control conversations, but uh, sometimes he will just wait days or even on purpose to respond to somebody. Yeah. In conversation. Yeah. He did that to Abigail later. Too. Like I have, I hold all the cards. Yeah. Yeah. And so eventually he did respond and he said, well, I just happened to see that uh, Facebook post that you made about Rachel Denholler. Not that I was stalking you. haha." And I just uh, thought maybe it was directed at me because, you know, I had mentioned her in my sermon recently and I just, I wanted to meet with you and just make sure I haven't offended you in some way. Okay. And so he made it sound like it was just going to be this very casual thing. He was going to check in. And it still seemed a little weird, but I decided to go. And so he, of course, picked the time, the place, everything. And so I showed up a little early to the meeting and he had already picked out where we were seated and he already had his drink and he had his Bible and his laptop and his notebook out ready to go. And I could tell immediately this wasn't what I was led to believe it was. Yeah. Yeah, marched me over to the register, insisted on paying for my drink. It seemed like he made a big show, you know. Yeah. And then marched me back over to the, you know, the booth and it was, or the table. And he just, he just ripped into me. It was so strange. There was nothing casual about this conversation. He just, just about so many different things, not even just about this. He just, went on about how I have distorted desires and, you know, it's his job to control the platform and was hitting me with this weird, these weird theology things that he was pulling out to try to tell me that my opinions were wrong. And, you know, and these were specifically in relation to the Facebook post or were they general? It was mostly in relationship to the post, but also just the issue of sexual abuse in general and just, Mm. Uh, and power dynamics at play because I told him that sexual abuse isn't about sex it's about power and he tended to put forth opinions like well it's all about porn if there just wasn't so much porn this wouldn't happen to all these poor poor women convenient convenient yeah and he actually said several he described things to me about his own sexual tendencies and history and started getting a little bit 
personal. I was starting to feel like that was a little bit strange that he was confiding this stuff in me. But he also, he ripped into me about not having children and went on that. And I told him at the time, I honestly don't ever remember discussing that with you. And I didn't remember discussing that with him. It's possible I did. And I just didn't remember. I and remember you- discussing it with his wife and what and was your head was to say, basically, I didn't open up that line of communication with you. Was that? Yeah. Ending? Yeah. Yeah. And it's possible that I did say something to him, but I don't remember. I remember speaking to his wife about it and what I thought was a confidential context, but he seemed to know an awful lot of things about me that I didn't remember talking to him about. And basically he just flew into a rage and said, oh yes, you did say that Kara, you said this and you said this. And he literally said, blah, blah, blah. Like as he was throwing his own words back in my face and he's just like yelling at me in the coffee shop in public and he's towering over me with his body, like leaning in. He's a big guy and I'm a tiny woman. And I remember there was a woman sitting nearby and she kind of made eye contact with me at that point. Like, is everything okay? Yeah. So I was getting a little bit scared because he was getting really aggressive with me. Right. Um, And it was just awful. He just basically told me that the only, he started dredging up my past trauma and vulnerabilities and basically saying that the reason I have the opinions that I do is because of the things that happened to me in my past. And I just, I just felt completely ripped apart and stunned. I could feel myself going into shock. And then all of a sudden he just sort of like shifted in his demeanor. It was really strange. And suddenly he just went into this different persona. He just started becoming very tender and just Mm. very intimate. And he was leaning into me this time, but it was more in like a flirtatious way. He's just like, Mm. oh, you know, I know that you have trauma from your past and like, I want to help you. And, you know, I, I can do that for you. And then he sort of solicited a one-on-one mentoring relationship with me. And he just said, you know, I'm good at mentoring women. And just as well. <laughs> yeah. And he's like leaning into me and his tone is very flirtatious and he's like making flirtatious facial expressions with me. And he's just like, I know that you've been burned by other pastors in the past, but I'm not like those others. I don't know what he was talking about, but the narrative. Mm. I don't have a history of problems with pastors, but interesting. So he kind of just like pulled that out of thin air. I'm not sure where he got that from. Maybe he misunderstood something that I had said, but he'd obviously been collecting data on me for a while, which started to alarm me. Yeah, it sounds like it. And he just said, and I know that you've been burned by other pastors, but I'm not like those others. I want to be your pastor, Kara. And it's After just, he's just chewed you out. Yes. Like he broke me down. And then now that he had me broken down, he was, you know, going in. So I learned later that apparently this is like, this is a common grooming tactic. Oh, for sure. You oh, break your, sure. your target down. You, you take away their sense of identity, like who they are. And you come and, and save them. them. Yeah. From the situation that you created. Right. And it's also not uncommon to focus on someone who has a history of trauma and abuse in their past, because then the grooming mechanisms are already in place for you to exploit. And then bonus, if that person tries to come forward against you, you can just point to their past and say, well, they're just confused because of what happened in their past. And guess what he did right on cue when I came forward. But yeah, he, so here he's in a flirtatious mode. And I just remember again, going into even more shock and being like, this isn't happening. This can't really be what's happening here. Like, And then he said, you don't have to have an answer for me right away. 
And then he sort of turned away from me very coyly and looked back with that. Yeah, Abigail's making this face like she knows exactly the facial expression. He just kind of looked back at me and goes, unless you do have an answer for me. I just didn't know what to say because I just didn't even know exactly what he was asking for. I guess I did. But so I I remember just kind of feeling very frozen and very detached. And I think I tried to say something diplomatic because I was worried that if I just flat out said no to him, like he would fly into a rage again. And then maybe I would be in danger. So I said something like, oh, I don't think we're ever really going to agree on everything we talked about today, but diversity of opinion is a good thing or something. I just kind of didn't even, you know, made it pretty clear I wasn't interested in whatever I was soliciting, but also trying to extract myself from the situation in a way that would de-escalate. Because you were safe, even though you're in a public place. Yeah. And like, you know, when he very abruptly ended the meeting and then he just sort of towered over me as I was trying to leave the coffee shop and was asking me if I was going to be walking home. And so I was walking home and he just kind of sat in his car watching me as I was walking away. It was just really, really scary. So I got home and my husband was home and he's just like, oh, how was your meeting? And I said, it was fine because I was just in so much shock. I just didn't know what to say. And the full story did not come out until probably months later because I it was my husband's boss. His whole ministry vocation was, you know, writing. Uh, just thought, yeah. And I'm sure that there was some like disassociation too. I mean, it's awesome that you remember so vividly, but I'm sure. Well, I've had a lot of trauma therapy. I've had a somatic experiencing and stuff. So I can talk about this stuff without shutting down. And that's been really helpful, but I had to build up a pretty strong window of tolerance to be able to talk about this stuff. Right. So it took you a few months to tell your husband exactly yep. what happened at that meeting. Right. And in the meantime, things were starting to escalate. After this incident at the coffee shop, Dan started behaving strangely, including cornering Kara at events, having secret meetings about Kara, and placing her in the small group of one of his henchmen, who will be referred to as the biblical counselor. Eventually, Kara would only go to church events if Dan were not going to be present. Kara blocked Dan on Facebook but she eventually discovered he was accessing her content through other people. Dan had a handful of people operating as his flying monkeys, running his shadow government. But things got really strange when Kara attended a church event where she was led to believe Dan would not be attending. This part of the story might be triggering for some. So I showed up to small group one night and everyone was acting really weird, especially those the small group leaders and like, what's going on? Why is everybody acting weird? And then eventually one of them says, by the way, the pastor's going to be stopping by. And, but she wasn't making eye contact with me or anything. She's acting really weird about it. And then he did, he showed up and I'm already just in high alert and I can feel myself shutting down. And he shows up to the small group with his wife and his kids and they don't come into the main room and join everybody else. They actually all just kind of sit in the kitchen you know, apart from everybody else, which is really strange. He comes into the main room and sits directly across from me and he spreads his legs and he's wearing like strange clothes, like gym clothes or something. And he spreads his legs so far apart and I can see all the way up his shorts and he's like flexing and behaving very weirdly. And I remember texting Chris and just being like, I can can see the pastors like jump through his shorts right now. It's just so weird. And so I was in shock and 
I actually giggled a little bit because like I was just in so much shock and the, the display was so strange. I study mate choice for a living, you know, so it's always a little weird when males are displaying of any species, but this just was so over the top and I was just like, this, wow. And obvious. Yeah. And I just thought, and I, it was so strange because I'm like, why isn't anybody like calling him out or anything? But it was the same, you know, people. He had the flying monkeys, I call them. That's a common term. So usually an abuser, when he has a target, he doesn't act alone a lot of the time. He does recruit, you know, a couple of flying monkeys, usually people that are close to the target to kind of enable the, the behaviors. And often, the, and yeah, it always seemed to come down to these same three people. It was the two I mentioned. And then there's a woman who's very heavily involved. Again, not an elder, so no accountability. And he often uses the woman to kind of get access to female targets. And she's heavily involved in the church. And she's another one where if you step out of line, you might be getting coffee. So yeah, he sort of had a shadow government. And because this was a church plant, there was no session of elders, you know, all this time. And so that was part of the way that they were able to operate for so long with minimal accountability, if any. So it was those same three people that were running the small group and that were in it. And so, and of course, they all are, you know, at least acting like they don't notice anything. And he's got his wife and kids right there in the next room. So like, if I try to say anything, he'd be like, no, my wife was there, you know, Mm. that never happened. So Abigail was actually there for that event because she was in the same small group. So she didn't see the display because she had got into the kitchen to talk with the wife and kids. But She did see his behavior after I giggled and he apparently got really angry and angrily called his daughter over to him, you know, get in here, get in here now. And she came over and he pulled her into his lap, like a little human shield and just was glaring at me. And I'm just like, I mean, if you didn't want to review, don't submit the manuscript. Like, you know, you put it out there. So I wasn't impressed. You gotta, you gotta giggle. I'm a biologist. I mean, (laughs) And again, it was just, I could feel myself going into shock because I was like, this can't be happening. All these people are here. My husband's right here. Like his wife is right here. Like, and then the worst incident actually happened at the house of that woman I was talking about. Again, she said there was this uh, church event that was typically only for the musicians, which I wasn't involved in the music ministry at the time. My husband was, but I don't normally get invited to this event, Jam and Bread, I think it was called, cute. And so I got invited and, you know, this woman just kept pressuring me to show up. And like, it was so weird. And eventually I, you know, gave in. So my husband went to the event. She, the woman lives in our neighborhood. So I just kind of walked over and sure enough, there was the pastor at the event. And so I went and sat on a couch and my husband was actually sitting next to me and there was a small coffee table in the middle of the room. And there was like a couple of books that the pastor had left. And so he comes in as I'm talking to somebody else who's on the other side of the room and presumably to pick up the books. But so when you go to pick up books, like the coffee table was small enough where he could have gone around to the other side and picked them up or he could have said, excuse me, but that's not what he did. Without saying a word to me, he just slid into the small space between the coffee table and the couch and just started like rubbing up against me. It was really strange. He was and your husband's sitting next to you? Yes, he saw this happen. Whoa. So he was picking up the books and he was rubbing up against me and he actually made contact with my breasts. Like, wow. But in a way where he could claim later that it was all an accident absolutely. or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. And later I asked Chris, did that really happen? And he's like, oh, yes. And I said, how long was that contact? And he said, that was at least 10 to 15 seconds of him rubbing up against you. Wow. And I said, well, why didn't you do anything about it? 
like, you know, and he just said, I couldn't believe it was happening. I was in shock too. And also I just didn't know what to do. Like, it just was so. And there's a power dynamic there too. Yeah. Yeah. It's his boss. Cause like a lot of times he would do these behaviors in a crowded room with people around. Like, it's not like he necessarily was waiting for me to be all alone. And then, mm-hmm. and I found out later, I've been doing research. That's actually really common. A lot of assaults and like, you know, molesting behaviors happen like with people around. I know in the Larry Nassar case, yeah. A lot of those parents assaults were, in the, were room. With the, the parents were like at the exam, yeah. having a conversation with him while he was literally assaulted. in the room with him. Yep. Yeah. Like right there. And that's when he would do a lot of this stuff. So like, I'm sure a lot of people probably are listening to these stories and going, oh, there's no way that could happen. Not with so many people around and her husband right there. No, a lot of times abusers will test the waters and groom everyone around the target to accept their behavior as normal. And then they will make their move with other people around so that they have deniability. Mm-hmm. So it's really common and people need to be aware that that happens. Mm-hmm. And there's a certain yeah. sense of the, the boldness of it that causes people to gaslight themselves. Like yes, like husband did. Like, I can't believe this is because right. so, yeah, it's so not normal. Right. And it's his boss too. So it's like, right. and actually what Chris told me later was that apparently this pastor started pressuring him to sort of join in. He said, you know, Kara just doesn't like me for some reason. She's not being nice to me. You need to do something about that. And just start repeatedly pressuring him to make me more receptive and nicer. And my husband was just like, I'm not going to do that. Like she's an adult and you're an adult. If you have an issue with her, you need to be going directly to her. And he repeatedly said that to him. And repeatedly he was told, you know, you need to make Kara be nicer to me. Like you need to get involved here. You know, your wife's out of line. Mm. And he actually started making insinuations about her marriage and trying to push Chris to put me in counseling and like, mm. you know, biblical counseling, of course. of course. Yeah. And he started pressuring my own husband to just hand me over, I guess. Um, and of course my husband refused repeatedly. And then his work situation just completely deteriorated. Like mm. the pastor started bullying him at his job. and That was awful. And this is after a period of you sort of rejecting this past circumstances. Oh yeah. It just got so bad. And he also was denying him a lot of the the boxes he needed to check for the internship to count towards, you know, ordination and ministry. And in retrospect, when confronted about that, his version of the story is that my husband was just this bumbling incompetent fool that just was really bad at ministry. And, you know, honestly, Kara's just making this up to get back at me because I, you know, didn't promote her husband or, but yeah, my, my husband paid a steep price for standing by me because he ended up having to drop out of seminary. The work situation was just really bad and he finished the internship, but because he didn't complete certain milestones because he was denied them. So for example, preaching a sermon, you know, Chris had asked to lead a small group and the pastor told him no, because you lack character and leadership abilities, you know, and he's, of course, the only one that has a say in that. Well, he also, the flying monkeys also yeah. got to have a say in it, and they backed him up every step of the way. Yeah, the same three people. It always comes back to the same three people in this situation. Other victims, it's the same thing. Like, whenever mm-hmm. they were having problems and they were trying to come forward, it was the three flying monkeys were always the ones that were sort of helping, you know, with the situation. So eventually, my husband and I left the church. And we, my husband actually tried to confront the pastor about his behavior on his way out, but the pastor wouldn't meet with him, you know, Matthew 18 style. He was just Mm -hmm. so busy, too busy to meet. Mm -hmm. So Chris contacted the provisional session, 
which is elders that were involved in the church planting and outreach team. And they approved Chris to write a letter to this pastor, like laying out his behaviors. And so he wrote the letter and delivered it to the pastor. And then they met with my husband to get his so-called side of the story. And my husband did tell him there are several women that are really uncomfortable with the way that this pastor looks at them and touches them. And he did tell, you know, the pastor that too. And basically one of the elders said, oh, well, you know, this pastor, he's just a good looking guy. I mean, I'm friends with him and we go out to eat and, you know, we see women looking at him in public. So, I mean, this is just sort of what happens when you're a good looking guy in ministry. And we, we were pretty shattered by that because they were meeting with him. They actually tried to get Chris to give up the identities of the women who had talked, you know, about their discomfort. So at that point we were starting to realize that there were other victims, multiple others. And connecting with people who were, who had left the church also, you know, cause they were our friends and it's a small town and right. starting to find out, you know, their involvement. Somewhere around that time is when Abigail confided in me unprompted. Cause I, again, I wasn't telling her anything because, you know, I didn't want to be accused of gossip. And in fact, I found out later that several months after we left the church, that pastor was continuing to monitor my social media through other people who were friends with me. And so when I posted about a book I'd read recently on narcissist pastors, he assumed I was talking about him and he sent his right-hand man to lambast my husband in public at a meeting. He called a meeting with my husband and was like, hey, let's catch up. Mm. And then he showed up and the right-hand man just ripped into Chris about letting his wife post on her Facebook targeting the pastor and just... You know, and then he like said, what would it take for you two to come back? You know, the music sucks now. Like, I'll hire a psychiatrist to prove to you that this pastor doesn't have NPD and isn't a narcissist. Whoa. And I'll hire a mediator to repair the relationship between you and, you know, to bring you back because your wife just, you know, she's confused, basically. Whoa. You know, you just can't let your wife say stuff like that. But I didn't say any of that. The post was about a book that I had read and I didn't mention this pastor at all. I didn't say, oh, this is just like a pastor that I know. He's paranoid. He's paranoid. Yeah. And then Abigail actually texted me. She was still attending and she was like, you might want to watch your back. This is Abigail's story. So I think the first interaction that made me uncomfortable happened probably a year into attending the church and a year into knowing the pastor. And at this point, I was fairly close to their family. Like Dan had given me and my husband like premarital counseling. And obviously there's like, those are like pretty private conversations and a lot of trust happens in those sort of conversations. And I was also teaching piano to their daughter. And so seeing them every week, like at their house and So yeah, I was seeing them quite often. The first experience was I like went to their house to teach and Dan was the only one who was there when I arrived, like the kids and his wife were like on their way back from something and they weren't home yet. And the pastor, he's, he really loves to box and do a lot of like very physical things. So when I pulled up, he was in the garage boxing with like a punching bag or something. And He just came and started talking to me on the driveway, like as we were waiting for the others to arrive and I was fine with it. You know, we were just chatting. It was a little bit uncomfortable just because he was like really winded and like, I'm used to seeing him at church in his like pastor outfit and he, you know, he was like boxing and stuff, but yeah, he 
some at some point in that conversation his eyes kind of wandered and he was like staring at my body in a way that made me really uncomfortable and I like noticed it and immediately like changed where I was standing to, to like adjust so that I wouldn't be like as close to him and I could tell that he kind of I don't know it seemed like he realized that I moved like as a direct response to how he was looking at me. But that whole experience made me super uncomfortable. And that was kind of the first thing that I noticed. And then there was another time where he asked me to basically help with ideas for decorations for a Good Friday service, but he called it aesthetics. And he wanted me to help the church and like his administrative assistant, like we were both gonna work on it together. But he ended up asking to meet with me alone to just like go over the plan or whatever, which I was fine with, like I was used to going to their house. But that interaction also made me super uncomfortable. Like I'm fine with meeting with men alone. Like I'm a professional woman and like, I obviously don't think there's anything wrong with that. But in the middle of us talking, we were at his house and his kids were there, but they weren't like in the room. He like abruptly got up and was like, excuse me one moment. And like went into his oldest kid's room and like basically demanded and was like, you need to come out and sit in the living room right now. And I could hear the whole conversation. And then he came back out and was like, oh, sorry. And like continued the conversation, but it just made me feel really weird. Like yeah, he didn't want to be in the same room with me or like he was like distracted by me or something and it just made me feel super like self-conscious and gross so that Um, was the same thing that he did with Kara pulling a kid in to kind of be yeah buffer and a barrier Mm -hmm. that's actually true it's the same pattern and yeah I just felt like super like yeah objectify or whatever in that moment. And there was another time similar to Kara's experience where he was picking up the books off a coffee table um, and was like putting his body up against her in a way like in front of people. He did that to me as well, but it was like in the middle of a church service. He like, I was sitting on the end of a pew or standing at the end of a pew and there was someone on my left that he wanted to talk to. And so he, instead of like coming in front of that person, because there was no one sitting in front of us. He like came next to me and like leaned up all the way against me and like was talking to that person. It was just extremely uncomfortable as well. And another time where it was like, he, it was in front of a large crowd. And so it made me think like, maybe this isn't actually happening or maybe it's like not, maybe I shouldn't feel uncomfortable. Like I'm just exaggerating it, but it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't appropriate and it was uncomfortable. And the nature of that incident was similar to Kara's where, you know, there are people there. So it makes you doubt whether it's happening and there's little and they're little they're like very subtle and very little mm-hmm. exactly like he knew how to sort of cross our barriers without it being huge enough for him to, like for his allies to like discredit him immediately like once we told them and there were other things too just like overall just weird ministry and leadership habits that he had like i wanted to start a be the bridge group which if you or your listeners don't know it's like a racial reconciliation bible study small group sort of thing and i learned about it recently and i thought it was really good materials and i was interested in starting like a small group within the women's ministry for this be the bridge thing but then the next thing i knew dan was texting me and asking to meet with me alone to talk about my ideas and Mm. At that point, I'd already had several uncomfortable interactions and I knew that I did not want to 
meet with him alone. Just straight up, I knew that I didn't want to meet with him alone. But I was also weirded out because, you know, it was for, for women's ministry. And I thought like, why is he stepping in and needing Absolutely. to like control and dictate this? So I just asked like, can I meet with you and your wife just since she's the director of women's ministry. And I also want to like hear what she's thinking. That way we can all just like have an open conversation about it talk about it together and he like waited like a week to respond to me he ended up saying sure like let's all meet together but the, the main red flag out of that was it seemed like he was trying to solicit a reason to be in alone with me the same thing with the good friday decorations thing and at that point kara had already left but I was still friends with her and I knew some stuff had happened, but I didn't know what had happened. And I started confiding in her and she told me like, you're not exaggerating and you're not like being overly worried about this. And she started opening up to me too. Then at some point we found out from another person who had left the church that Dan had, I don't know if it was like actually like a physical list or if it was just like some list in his head of women who attend the church who he was physically attracted to that he would like brag about to other men and say like i'm attracted to these people and i'm like i want to be in like one-on-one -on -one mentoring relationships with them and then he would like ask other men like who are you attracted to in the church i'm not exactly sure what context this was happening in but we found out that this was something he would do and that made us feel super like well one extremely angry but also validated that we weren't like crazy that we were right to feel extremely uncomfortable and violated in the interactions that he had with us because there were ulterior motives. Right. Right. You weren't reading into it. Tell me about, so I guess the part where you guys decide, Hey, we're going to go forward and we're going to address this and we're going to bring this up. That was it. That was the last straw was finding out about the him, uh, the women that he's attracted to. And then the mentoring thing that, so that was over a year after I'd had my encounter with him at the coffee shop. And I had been questioning up to that point that maybe I read into that, or maybe there was some doubt, but him just explicitly telling other men, you know, these are the women that I think are attractive and why. And I even like to get into one-on-one -on -one mentoring relationships with some of them. And mm -hmm. I remembered that that was what he had solicited with me. It was a one-on-one -on -one mentoring relationship and he was presenting it to me in a very. So that checked out. Uh, it, like, yeah. and his body language and his tone were very well, what he imagined probably was seductive and flirtatious. And, but it was, it was exactly what it seemed to be, you know, and he was even bragging about it and trying to get other men involved in it. Mm. Um, and then we also, at that point did find out about other victims and we're not going to tell their stories because you know, that's their stories to tell. Mm -hmm. But, you know, at that point we were starting to realize this was a pattern that went back pretty far and that there were, there was just a trail of really broken, traumatized people, especially women, but also some men. Yeah. My so husband, what did you do? What was the next step for you? Well, my husband had already tried to confront this when we, we were leaving and he had written that letter and the elders had met with him and tried to pressure him to give up the names of women who had talked. And basically they met with the pastor and got his side of the story. And then they came back to my husband and said, well, here's the thing. There are three people, types of people in ministry. There's prophets, priests, and kings. And you know, this pastor, yeah. well, I know, I know. <laughs> I, I've had a lot of therapy, so I can talk about this now without that exact reaction. It took about six months before I could even ha uh, remember the the man spreading incident without literally throwing up. Like, yeah. So 
prophets, priests, and kings, and so he's about to like basically use that as an excuse for this man. Right. Right. Um, he's like, well, you see, this pastor, he's a king. And well, you're not, and you're just not fit to work with a king in ministry. You're just a bad fit, you know? Mm. And that's just how it is. Unbeknownst to us at the time, this pastor and his minions had been trashing, completely trashing Chris to the entire presbytery behind his back mm. and just made him sound like this incompetent fool. And like, yeah, Chris, that makes me I, so mad. I know. He is so nice and he was so good at his job and so chill. Like, he made it. I was on the worship team. And this with is him. Chris you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Like he made it, it so fun and so chill and he was really good at his job. And so the fact that he was so like people were spreading all these lies about how he just wasn't a good fit because he wasn't a hard worker. He wasn't a good leader. Like all those people who were saying those things. There wasn't even so, a lot of people. It was just this pastor and his three, you know, bonsai Shenzi and Ed going around. Helping. Right. It was, it was yeah. just the flying monkeys, but yeah, yeah. I, that makes me so angry. Yeah, well, that's good to hear, honestly, because Chris was really depressed about this, and it's it's good to hear affirmation that he was very good at his job and a pleasure to work with, which is what yeah, I always he was. Yeah, and he had six years of ministry experience before that, full time with another church, you know, and there were literal tears when we had to leave to get my PhD. Mm-hmm. Like they hired, I think, three different people to try to replace Chris and do everything that he was doing for that church, and it still wasn't enough. Like. We still hear from those that church back there about like how much they miss him and how hard it's been without him. So mm. I feel a little bad for packing him up and moving him, but oh well. Mm. But yeah, they just came back and Chris was not told about this. So he had had his final meeting with this pastor, like his internship assessment. None of this came up, like no accusations that he was bad. But yeah, so my husband is unaware that he's been brutally trashed behind his back. His ministry career was completely torpedoed, but on his way out the door, these people were just like, well, you know, this pastor, he's a king and you're not, you know, and you're just not a good fit. So we had already attempted to confront the issue, you know, the so-called biblical way, Matthew 18, and this pastor had refused to meet with him. Yeah, they teach you how to do it. That's how they teach you how to do it. Right. And they have since then tried to claim that we didn't follow Matthew 18, so we should throw this whole thing out. But not only is that false, but also Matthew 18 is a bad idea for abuse victims. Like well, yeah, because Matthew 18 is designed for a peer-to-peer relationship. It is, right. not, it is not meant to be power dynamic relationship, but conveniently people in power will use that. Yes. To say mm-hmm. you did Matthew 18. And we know it's of multiple instances where, yeah. you know, victims of this man have attempted to do the Matthew 18 thing and confront him. And they were traumatized by those interactions, severely verbally abused and torn down. And there were threats, like threats to talk to other pastors in the area so that they can't join another church, you know, just like it did not go well. And of course, there's no witnesses because it's one-on-one, right? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Like people who so diplomatically and kindly met to try to like resolve things before they left. And then they were labeled they're these divisive gossipers who shouldn't go to any other churches because of how awful they are. Just like complete lies spread around about them. Right. So this was a pattern that we were aware of at this point. And we also knew a bunch of other people had attempted to come forward with their concerns and had always sort of been railroaded. Yeah. Um, And the stories just get buried. These people leave and no one knows why. And no, it never seemed to get past this like church planting group. Like they always were the ones that would come out of the woodwork and kind of smooth everything out. Yep. Mm. Yep. 
we know who those people are too. Um, so you guys were following a different verse, which was be wise as serpents. Harmless as doves. Yes. Well, gentle as doves. <laughs> um, in fact, we, that's what we called it. That was the wise as serpents, gentle as doves protocol. Really? Um, yeah. But because we knew we were going to have to be strategic about this because we'd seen so many other people fail. And so obviously what other people had tried in the past was not working. So we were going to have to do something a little different. So, you know, Abigail and I wrote a letter and we just laid out our testimonies about what had happened. And we also included the testimony of another couple that had been abused by this man. And we had a section. Yeah. Chris wrote a section. And then we also had another couple that was willing to come forward and testify, you know, and they reached out and they wrote their testimony, which I think was about 15 pages. We've never seen it. Mm. We didn't show each other like our testimonies because we wanted to see if they corroborated independently. So this is important to mention now because we have been accused of collusion and that this is all a huge conspiracy against this pastor, that all these families in Bloomington just got together to run him out of town. But you intentionally did not, because you were confident enough in the story situation that you knew that enough evidence was going to line up. To this day, we haven't exchanged testimonies. We don't know what's in each other's. Like we still don't know, but yeah. So just, but this letter we wrote. And so we realized we had to be deliberate about who we sent it to. So we did ask to be anonymous in the letter because we were fearful because this man has a temper. It's a small town and he was still there. He goes to my gym. He's always in the coffee shops. That was something that he had told Chris was that there's certain coffee shops he likes to go to because certain hot moms who work out go to those coffee shops and he likes to look at them. That is so inappropriate for anyone Yeah. But especially a pastor. Well, he also said he likes to go to the gym and look at the women while they're working out. So I couldn't go to the gym after I found out about that because I was so scared because he goes to my gym. Oh. Oh. Yeah, it was just disgusting. We just kept finding out more and more stuff like that. Right. For time. So So who did you end up sending the letters to eventually? So we sent them to, we sent it to the same, the, basically the elders in the presbytery who were in charge of things like pastoral care and church welfare and, you know, the church planting committee. We also CC'd, so are, you're probably familiar with RUF, right? The campus ministry or PCA. So we have a campus minister at our church, our old church, and IU has a pretty big RUF. And so we were worried about the students as well, especially the young women. And in fact, we were told that the prior campus minister had actually been run out by our pastor and he had been replaced by one of this pastor's seminary buddies. Hmm. And some abuse victims on their way out had been told this man is partly being installed so he can hold the pastor accountable, you know, because they're friends. And so we heard that and we're like, okay, if you're me, right. And this man actually was present at the meeting where Chris was speaking with these people about his issues. So this man was present. So we CC'd him on the letter. So he knew about my husband's departure and he also is fully aware of the contents of that letter. He's still a campus minister here, but we CC'd him because we had been told, oh, that was his part of his job was babysitting this pastor. So, okay. And we also CC'd a couple of women on there. So there are several women listed on the Presbytery website that were like in charge of women things. I don't really know what they do. Women things. I don't know women something. So we CC'd them on there because we're like, what happens if women find out about what's going on? You know, will the narrative change? So it was sort of almost an experiment. We were trying to diagnose at what point is there a bottleneck in the process of coming forward? Where are we getting stuck? So yeah, 
I think it was about what seven people, Abigail, that we see. Yeah, yeah that sounds it was, right. It was mostly elders. Again, the church was still a church plant, so there was no session of elders at the church. It was just this pastor running the show and then his shadow government. And so we did not CC him on it because we were fearful of retaliation. We knew that he would be made aware of it later, mm-hmm. but but attempts to contact him one on one by other victims had been miserable failures. So, so yeah, it was mostly elders in the presbytery that were in charge of things like pastoral care or stuff, or people who were in charge of working with this pastor directly, you know, overseeing him. And then the campus minister who was supposed to be providing accountability to him as his friend. Got it. So, yeah. So that's who we sent the letter to. All right. And then what was the fallout from that? Next time on Uncertain. He preached this really angry, ranting, horrible sermon about haters and accusers and false witnesses and all of these enemies of his. And then they also referred to our trauma as locker room bravado and seventh grade playfulness. To your faces? Oh, yeah. But like we, we knew the whole thing of like, you know, accusing us of being troublemakers and gossipers was sort of a trope in this presbytery that had been used in the past. So we were just really worried that they would try that. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uncertain is the affiliate podcast of Tears of Eden, a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider making a donation by visiting tearsofeden.org support. All donations are tax deductible. Intro music featured in this episode is from the band Green Ashes. Before you go, please take a moment to like, subscribe, or leave a review, and don't forget to share this podcast show with everyone you know. I'm Katherine Spearing, and I'll see you next time. Hey.